0: Here in the UK, the Advertising Standards Authority exists to guard against misleading advertising. One of the big issues the Advertising Standards Authority is dealing with at the moment is the claims that many companies make about being carbon neutral or net zero. Businesses throw those claims at us all the time nowadays to assure us they're environmentally friendly and worthy of our business. We can trust them to do the right thing environmentally. But when those claims about being carbon neutral or net zero are scrutinized, they're often found to be at best misleading and at worst, not true at all. The Advertising Standards Authority's job is to push for greater transparency and greater honesty from companies claiming to be environmentally friendly. Why do I mention that this morning? I mention it because the Church of Jesus Christ also has a responsibility to be transparent and honest in its advertising. But sometimes, in its desire to attract people to Christianity the church has not quite been transparent and honest. Sometimes the church advertises the Christian life as a bit of a cakewalk. Come to Jesus and your troubles will melt away. You'll experience wonderful health and material prosperity and greater popularity. People will find you irresistible. Come to Jesus and your relationships and your career will go up to a whole new level. Maybe you've heard that kind of Christian advertising. It's not hard to find on YouTube, in books. It's not hard to find, but the Advertising Standards Authority would be quite right to call the church out when it makes those kind of claims. Because Jesus Christ, the founder of Christianity, did not make those kind of claims. When Jesus taught about the Christian life, he spoke with complete transparency and honesty. In recent weeks, we've been listening to Jesus as he shares his final meal with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And during that meal, Jesus sets out the crucial realities of the Christian life. We've heard him say that on the cross, he will prepare a glorious, eternal future for his followers, a place with his Father. We've also heard Jesus assure his followers that in the meantime, they will not be left alone. God the Holy Spirit will come to be in them as they live for Jesus. Last week, we heard Jesus say, He is the true vine. Through their connection with Jesus, the disciples can be fruitful. And Jesus said, joyful as well. And at the end of our passage last week, Jesus described a particular fruit that comes from being connected to him. That fruit is love for one another. Love between brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are glorious things. And if you and I had been coming up with an advertising campaign for Christianity, we'd probably have been happy for Jesus to wrap up his teaching at that point. But Jesus is not finished. Jesus is fully committed to honesty and transparency. Jesus is committed to truth in advertising. And so, having front-loaded those glorious truths about the Christian life, Jesus now goes on to some other truths you and I might not be so comfortable with. Truths the church is often tempted to leave out of its advertising. But Jesus gives us these truths for our good. These are truths we need if we're going to persevere in the Christian life. In our passage this morning, Jesus tells his first disciples, and he tells us, This is not a game. Turn with me to John chapter 15. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1083. In the larger print Bibles, 1677. And we're going to read from chapter 15, verse 18, down to the middle of chapter 16, verse 4. We're going to stop mid-verse in chapter 16, verse 4. Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin They hated me without reason. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. This is God's word. And this part of God's word gives us some pretty bracing truth in advertising. First, in chapter 15, verses 18 to 25, Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. The world that hated Jesus will hate his followers too. Just look at that again in chapter 15 verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, and the implication is, and it will, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The world here means the world in its rebellion against God. As John's gospel has unfolded, we have seen the hatred of the world focused on Jesus. We'll very shortly see that hatred reach a climax as Jesus is sent to the cross. Now, of course, that hatred comes through the religious leaders in Jerusalem, but those men are representatives of the world. Their attitude to Jesus is not unique It's the attitude of all who reject Jesus. And here Jesus says to his followers, because you are associated with me, the world's hatred of me is going to spill over to include you. In fact, the more you become like me, the more the world will hate you, as it hated me. What is the root of this hatred? The the root of it is a society of rebels against God is not very appreciative of those who leave its society of rebellion and give their allegiance to Jesus as their king. And that is what Christians are. We are not superior people. We are people who used to be rebels just like everybody else. But by His amazing grace... Jesus has chosen us out of the world. In his mercy, he has brought us into a new life of joyful obedience to God. Instead of rebellion against him. And the society of rebels does not appreciate former members who no longer conform to its rules and priorities. That is why the world hates you, Jesus says. But you and I might want to argue with this a little bit. We might want to say, honestly, I don't really see that happening. What I see is more just apathy. People don't hate me for giving my allegiance to Jesus. They really couldn't care less. Well, that may be our experience up to a point but only up to a point. Because sooner or later, our allegiance to Jesus will provoke a reaction. It may be that our commitment to honesty and truthfulness will provoke a reaction from those whose daily practice is to be untruthful and dishonest. I'm sure plenty of you have been in environments where lying and cheating is normal, And if anyone refuses to conform to that, they suffer for it. And what about living by the moral blueprint the Bible gives us? A blueprint that Jesus highlighted in his own teaching. The blueprint that says sex is a wonderful thing, and it's a wonderful thing to be enjoyed only in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Today, even if, as a Christian, you're not trying to push your own beliefs and lifestyle onto anyone else, sooner or later you will be hated by this world simply because of your personal moral convictions. Just ask Kate Forbes. She was a potential candidate for the leadership of the Scottish National Party until she was excluded, essentially, from the leadership race before it even started. Just because she personally held a biblical view on marriage. Just ask Tim Farron, who not long ago was hounded out of leadership in the Lib Dems, because he held a Christian view on marriage. And we're not even talking here about Christians trying to make laws about marriage. We're just talking about the personal convictions they have about marriage. Increasingly, the world judges those personal convictions to be unacceptable. C.S. Lewis is one of the most successful children's authors ever due to his series of Narnia books. Most famously, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, and his Christian convictions are certainly present in the Narnia books. But you and I might be forgiven for thinking that those children's books are pretty innocuous. Their Christianity is hardly in your face. We might wonder how anyone could object to those books. But the author, Philip Pullman, does not agree. Philip Pullman wrote his own series of children's fantasy books called His Dark Materials. It recently turned into a TV series on the BBC. You might have seen it, or at least seen it advertised. Philip Pullman is a strong opponent of Christianity. And in an interview with Time magazine, Pullman said, I think C.S. Lewis was profoundly immoral when he wrote those books. Simple Christian convictions are now viewed by many as profoundly immoral. Because simple Christian convictions do not conform to the current morality of this world. In fact, sticking with C.S. Lewis for a moment, he has recently become a target of the government's prevent program. Prevent was a program set up to prevent extremism in the UK. And they have warned recently that radicalization could occur from reading C.S. Lewis's books. So be careful when you're reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You may be aware of the current campaign to ban conversion therapy. Now, no one disputes that lots of strange and even harmful things have been done in the past in the name of altering people's sexual orientation, electric shock treatment, and so on. But the fact is, those kind of practices are already illegal in this country. The current campaign is aimed at outlawing prayer for people who want to resist sexual temptation. It's aimed at outlawing biblical teaching on sex. Why are those things unacceptable to many in our society? Because they don't conform to what our society currently celebrates and promotes. That's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 19. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. And some did obey Jesus' teaching. So alongside the assurance that there will be hatred and opposition... Jesus also gives assurance that some will come and join us as we follow him. And that's very realistic. Not everyone does react negatively or angrily when we live for Jesus and speak about him. Some are drawn to him through our lives and our words. And we give thanks for what we heard from Josh. Examples of that happening in the uni in Birmingham. Some will be drawn to Jesus. But in this passage, Jesus is mainly concerned to forewarn us about the negative reactions. And in verses 21 to 25, Jesus goes below the surface to get at what is really going on. Look at those verses again. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now, they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hits me, hits my Father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. What does Jesus mean when he says twice here, if it hadn't been for him, people would not be guilty of sin? In verse 22, he says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. And in verse 24, If I had not come and done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Is Jesus saying the world was without sin before he came? Well, no, one of the central claims of the New Testament is that Jesus came because the world was guilty and lost and condemned in its sin. The world needed a Savior. That's why Jesus is here in the first place. So then what does Jesus mean in these verses? The key words are at the end of verse 22. Now, in in, in other words, now that I have come, They have no excuse for their sin. Since the creation of the world, God has been revealing himself to the world. Through the creation itself, and even more significantly, through his word. And since human beings rebelled in Genesis chapter 3, the world has been sinful. But here Jesus says, with my arrival in this world, any excuse for sin has been removed. That's because Jesus' words and Jesus' actions are the supreme revelation of God. Jesus is the one who supremely makes God known. And so not only is there no excuse for continuing in sin, not only that, but because Jesus is God's supreme and final word of love to this world, then to reject Jesus brings greater guilt than ever before. Don Carson explains it like this. So clear, so pure, so brilliant is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ that the world is robbed of all excuse when it confronts him. Its excuses never amounted to much... Now they amount to nothing. Not only does Jesus expose sin, he is also sin's remedy. What excuse and what hope can there be for those who turn away from such a light as this? That's why in another place, Jesus can say it will be better on judgment day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who reject Jesus and his messengers. If you've read the Old Testament, you'll have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two Old Testament cities went down in history for their great evil. But Jesus says it's a worse evil to reject the supreme revelation of God in Christ. There's absolutely no excuse for it. Jesus' words and actions prove his identity as God in the flesh. So here in verse 24, Jesus says, those who reject him hate both him and his Father. And that is why those same people will ostracize and scorn and ridicule and sometimes even persecute those who belong to Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master. The world that hated Jesus will hate his followers too. So now that we know this, what are we supposed to do? Whine about it? Stamp our feet and say it's not fair? To rebuild thicker walls around the church? and lock the doors, and create our own little commune here where we are shut off from the world that hates Jesus? No. Jesus goes on to say, you also must testify. Jesus' followers join the Holy Spirit in witnessing to the truth about Jesus. Look at that down in verse 26. Jesus says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus first mentioned this advocate back in chapter 14. And we said then, the original word is paraclete. It's impossible to translate with just one English word. Advocate is certainly one way to translate it, but we could also use the words helper, strengthener, comforter, or counselor, depending on which aspect of the paraclete's work we're talking about. This is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And here Jesus calls him the Spirit of Truth. That's one aspect of his work, testifying to the truth about Jesus. In fact, all the Holy Spirit does has the aim of glorifying Jesus. One writer describes the whole work of the Holy Spirit as a floodlight ministry. He comes to shine the light on Jesus and highlight Jesus. So here's a little tip for you. If you ever come across something that claims to be a work of the Holy Spirit, but it does not turn the floodlight on Jesus, if it sidelines Jesus, then it ain't the Holy Spirit you're dealing with. It may be some other spirit, but it is not the Holy Spirit you can recognize the Holy Spirit's work because he is always pointing to Jesus and elevating Jesus and glorifying Jesus. And here Jesus says, after all that I have just told you about the world's hatred of me, here is why all is not lost. After I return to my Father, the Holy Spirit will come to this world and testify about me. The Holy Spirit will continue to confront the world with the truth about me, my words and my actions. How will the Holy Spirit do that? He will do it through Jesus' followers. That includes us today. But the man Jesus is speaking to here, they had a unique role to play in how the Holy Spirit testifies to the world. In verse 27, Jesus says to them, and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. These men have a unique role because they have been with Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry on earth. Jesus chose them to be with him so that later after the cross, they would produce the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Words and work that we find now in the New Testament. And here in verses 26 and 27, Jesus is not saying the Holy Spirit will do his thing testifying about me. And you guys can do your thing testifying about me. No, the Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus through the testifying of these men. In other words, the Holy Spirit will testify through the New Testament. He will not only enable these men to uh, preach and then write a true and accurate testimony to Jesus. We'll hear more about that another week. The Holy Spirit will not only guide and direct the writers of the New Testament, but He will then testify through the New Testament he will use the New Testament to do his testifying about Jesus. As the New Testament is read and preached, the Holy Spirit will make it come alive as a living testimony about Jesus. So yes, when Jesus calls these men to testify in verse 27, he is certainly calling them to be courageous. Testifying for Jesus always does require courage given what we've heard in the previous verses about this world's hatred. But verse 27 is more than a call to be courageous. It is an assurance to these men that as they testify, they are joining the Holy Spirit in His work. He is the senior partner in this work of testifying. He is the one with the power and the heft to make their testimony about Jesus effective. These men do not stand alone in a world that hates Jesus. They haven't been handed a few pea shooters and told to go and make something happen if they can. Not at all. As these men go and testify, they will have God's empowering presence with them. They are joining the work of the Holy Spirit their helper is the one who can open blind spiritual eyes and soften hard hearts and transform haters of Jesus into lovers of Jesus. And today, you and I have the same helper with us. As we testify about Jesus, Yes, we've noticed that our situation is not the same as these first disciples. Today, we testify about Jesus as we take their testimony and share it with others. Today, you and I testify about Jesus by bringing the truths of the New Testament to our family, friends, and workmates. We do not try and invent the wheel all over again by testifying to our own thoughts and feelings and ideas about Jesus. Now, we represent the testimony of the New Testament. And we do so knowing that we face this world with much more than a few pea shooters. We have this spirit-inspired testimony about Jesus that still testifies powerfully to him as we hand it out to people, and as we share the truths of it with people. As Jesus followers today, we join the Holy Spirit in witnessing to the truth about Jesus. And we do it knowing it might possibly cost us everything. That's what Jesus emphasizes next. And he emphasizes it so that you will not fall away. Jesus' followers must be prepared to pay the ultimate cost. We might not necessarily have to pay the ultimate cost, but we might. And so you and I have to count that possible cost before making some quick and light-hearted decision to follow Jesus. If you and I are not prepared to pay the ultimate cost for Jesus, we will probably not pay the minor costs for him either. But if you and I follow him with our eyes open to what it may end up costing us, then we'll be more likely to take the minor costs in our stride. We will keep following even if the costs keep piling up. Look what Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 1. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Jesus says he's giving advance warning of these things so that we won't be shocked and we won't fall away if they happen. To fall away means to turn away from following him. And this is another of those places where the initial application is specific to these 11 men who are with Jesus. They are all Jews by background. That is their community. That is their people. And when verse 2 mentions being put out of the synagogue, that meant much, much more than just being told, you can't come in this building anymore. To be put out of the synagogue Meant you no longer belong to the Jewish community. It meant that your people said to you, You are no longer one of us. We are not your people anymore. That is a high price to pay. But here in verse 2, Jesus indicates it could get worse. Saul of Tarsus was one of those who thought he was offering a service to God by killing Jesus' followers. The book of Acts describes Saul's murderous attitude to the church. When we first meet him, he's standing minding the coats as an angry crowd stone one of Jesus' followers to death, a man called Stephen. Acts tells us Saul approved of the killing and then he went on his own spree against the church. Killing Christians in the name of religion. It goes on in parts of the world today in the name of Allah. It's not always in the name of religion, of course. The Roman Empire hounded, tortured, and killed Christians in the name of squashing anything that rivaled Rome in people's minds and hearts. The communist Soviet Union killed plenty in the name of atheism. Today, communist North Korea carries on that tradition. But for many of us, certainly not all of us, But for many of us here this morning, that seems so far removed from our situation. The idea of being killed for following Christ seems like another world to us. And that's where the great danger lies for us. The great danger for you and me in this country is that we think this is all a game that Christianity is something we try to see how it works for us. And if the results are good, if our lives seem to improve by giving our allegiance to Jesus, then we'll stick with him. But if things get tougher for us, if we start feeling the heat because of our allegiance to Jesus, if it looks like there might be a cost coming our way, and we're not so sure. If the game isn't going our way, maybe we'll stop playing. Listen to one church leader and his assessment of the danger you and I face. He says, "So much, popular, Western, evangelical religiosity is so shallow and selfish. It promises so much and demands so little. It offers success, personal happiness, peace of mind, material prosperity, but it hardly speaks of repentance, sacrifice, self-denial, holy lifestyle, and willingness to die for Christ. Every one of us needs to face the question soberly, am I ready to die for Christ? It is not a theoretical question. Jesus has the clear right to ask it of us. And he gives no guarantee that he will not. Following Jesus is not a game. It's important to point out this is not saying you and I need to find the strength within ourselves to stand and possibly even die for Christ. None of us have that strength within us. This is not a challenge for all the tough heroes of the world to come and help Jesus out by standing strong for him. No, this is a call to count the cost and be willing to stand for Jesus and maybe even die for him. This is about willingness. The strength will be supplied by God's Holy Spirit when it is needed. He will keep us. In the worst trouble, He will carry us through. So you and I don't need to worry about whether we could stand in a time of trial. What we must do is consider that trials may come we must consider that and then make the commitment that no price is too great for us to pay for Jesus. Let him take care of making us strong in the trials. Let's you and I accept that following Jesus is not a game. It's the most deadly, serious thing in the world. And It is the most wonderful thing. Let's remember that too. To be with Jesus is to be ultimately on the winning side. We've talked about paying the ultimate cost to follow Jesus. But in reality, the truly ultimate cost is paid by those who do not follow Jesus those who reject him. Because in rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting God's final word of love. They are rejecting eternal life. They are rejecting a life in fellowship with God now as he makes his home with us by his Holy Spirit. Those who reject Jesus also miss out on the beauty of Christian love and fellowship. those who reject Jesus are turning away from a truly fruitful and joyful life. And so, so what if they gain a bit in terms of comfort and acceptance and pats on the back from this world? So what? None of that compares to all that we have in Christ. But if we are going to enjoy all we have in Christ, we must count the cost of following Christ. If we treat the Christian life like a game, we will lose. The way to win is to take the Christian life more seriously than anything else. Then one day, and by God's power, we will be able to say what the Apostle Paul said at the end of his life. A life that had been transformed by Christ. We spoke about Paul earlier when he was still known as Saul of Tarsus. But Christ's power transformed Paul from a hater of Christ to a committed follower of Christ. And in the end, Paul was able to say this I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This morning, let's make our own commitment to fight the good fight. And for that, we need God's help. So let's pray. Father, we confess our weakness. We confess our own lack of resolve. We confess our great fear of missing out or being harmed in this life. We ask you to replace that fear with a new awareness of your greatness and your worth. Help us to treasure you above all else. You are the greatest treasure. Help us to treasure you so much that we're willing to lose everything for you. Because to know you is to be infinitely rich and infinitely blessed. In our weakness, we look to you and we commit ourselves to you, trusting you to help us. Amen. Let's join in a song of commitment. Jesus, I, my cross have taken all to leave and follow you.